Hello, everybody. This is the Farm and Garden Show. I am your host, Elizabeth Archer. Very happy to be with you. Mercury is in retrograde, so make sure you are not making any important deals right now and that you are also not trying to switch your cell phone over like I currently am. Um, <laughs> I want to share something exciting happening in the farm and garden world right now. The School of Adaptive Agriculture, which is a nonprofit organization based in Willits, hopefully you have heard of them because uh, they're super awesome. If you haven't, I encourage you to check them out. They are offering a virtual series that are all online via Zoom. Zoom, not Zoom. There's one tonight called Organizing for Easy Living at 7 p.m. that I am actually going to. And in the coming weeks and months, there are classes about all sorts of topics. There's medicinal mycology, small farm bookkeeping and taxes and how to jump the regulatory hurdles. Uh, natural building class, a two-part herbal first aid class, lots more. There's garden photography, um, just a bunch of cool stuff. They're all really affordable. They're online via Zoom, and it's a nonprofit, so you're supporting a good cause. Um, there are also usually farmer and student discounts. So if you're interested in those courses, including tonight's about organizing for easy living, I'm a pretty organized person, but who couldn't use a little extra help in that department? Um, go to School of Adaptive agriculture.org that's school of adaptive agriculture.org to learn more and sign up now if that doesn't sound like your cup of tea tonight at 7 p.m you can also tune in to be more now with blake moore host blake moore will interview vibrational science pioneer don estes they will discuss his lifelong quest to develop methods and practices to use sound light and vibration technologies rather than psychedelics to access non-ordinary states of mind. That's Be More Now tonight at 7 p.m. That sounds pretty trippy. Um, I'm very excited to introduce you to my guest today. I have Rachel Britton here with me in the studio, which is a rarity that I'm super happy about. Um, she is the owner and operator of the Mendocino Grain Project. She purchased that from Doug Mosel in 2020. The Mendocino, Grain Project, uh, the Mendocino Grain Project grows and sells staple crops, primarily grains for local consumption, and also helps other area grain growers harvest and clean their crops. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. I'm going to try and adjust a little so I can look at you. Usually my guests are on Zoom and I'm just looking at the computer, but now I actually get to look you right in your lovely face. Right back at you. <laughs> I also appreciate that luxury. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, I just want to start with a little background information on you, where you're from, how long you've been here, what you love about Mendocino. Tell me about it. Yeah, Tell me about I yourself. I love about Mendocino. That could last the whole break. I know. Uh, yeah, so um, often people are confused about how I got into this. And then I tell them that I grew up in Iowa. And they have this reaction like that explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> the Which, grain bowl. Exactly. What's it called? The, the, the bread, bread basket. basket. Thank yeah. you. Um. So my by the time I can really remember, my parents were not farming, but... My uncles and my, um, were farming. My parents farmed when I was quite small, mostly corn and soybeans, and that's most of what Iowa is, and pork. Um, thankfully, much like here, there is, you know, um, smaller scale or s smaller scale farmers that are working on exploring different distribution routes and getting the food that's actually grown there to, um, local tables. Mm. So that's exciting. Fun to stay connected. I have, a group of cousins that have all come back to the farm and are farming there too. So, uh, your family to, farm, like your family, your, her your heritage land. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. And actually, of my, my uncle, my father's brother had three boys and they've all come back to the farm and they having left and done other things, they're bringing kind of a fresh eye. And in fact, this year is the first year that they completed their transition and they're selling certified organic corn. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. So you didn't stay in Iowa. I didn't stay you're in Iowa. You're here in California. How'd <laughs> yeah. that happen? Well, that uncle in particular did give me a pretty hard time for leaving Iowa to study agriculture. So I, um, F followed f immediate family to Washington, 
and started my college education there, ended up transferring to finish my degree at the Evergreen State College. Oh, yes, near and dear to my heart. Oh, good. I'm from Seattle. Oh, love that. (laughs) Yeah, so that's where I ultimately finished my undergrad degree in agriculture with an emphasis in crop botany and genetics. Cool. <laughs> That's so interesting because you would expect someone that majored in crop botany and genetics to go right into green, but you didn't. I didn't. Yeah. So I was really interested in in possibly working internationally. I was interested in the Peace Corps. My, my sister had done um, the Peace Corps. And so someone gave me John Jevons' book. Uh, when I very first worked on my first organic farm in Washington. And so I read it, and while I was in school at the Evergreen State College, we did this amazing field trip all the way down through Oregon and California that culminated um, at e- the Eco Farm Conference, for those of you that Ooh, are familiar. very cool. What year was that? That would have been 2009. Getting the Wayback Machine. <laughs> um Yeah, and so we visited Jevons, and I had read his book at that point, so I was very excited, and I was also very interested in how, you know, nerd alert, how we handle the limiting factor of nitrogen in Mm. organic farms, because nitrogen, all plants need nitrogen, and it's hard to get, in a natural way, a sufficient amount and um, and get... yields that would support a a farmer and a community. So I was very passionate about that and excited about the ways that Jevons, I felt like, was authentically asking that question. Hmm. So I was thrilled to meet him. My classmates really teased me a lot for how excited I was. And And so I met him. I had him sign my really old copy of the book. He gave me a new one. It was all very exciting. <laughs> but when, when you say the book, that is oh, how yes. to grow more vegetables, right? Yes, of course. it's true. On less land than you can possibly imagine. Right. I would sometimes tease him that it's also how you can fit more words in a title than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> because he did, in fact, ultimately add more. But many people are familiar. So, yeah. Uh, so stayed very interested in that. And when I was about to graduate, I visited again and brought my resume and Jevin said, are you up for 10 years? And I said, bring it on. 10 years. <laughs> John Jevons is a gateway drug to Mendocino County. He is, so yeah. I'm not at all surprised that that's how that's you came. True. Well, but we have him to thank for that. Too, 10 yeah. years. What's that about? Um, you know, I think Something I really value about Jevons is he puts a lot of value in this idea of what he calls the farmer preserve. And I think that's kind of, for him, means removing enough distraction for young people to give them the opportunity to sink into what it, what it really means to be connected to an ecological system and work and live and thrive and innovate in that system. And so, one of the things that he asks for from his staff is long-term commitment. That makes sense. Yeah. Did you stay for 10 years? I didn't. Close. (laughs) I did stay for six. (laughs) And, and, um, and certainly learned a lot and am very thankful for that. Well, and you stayed in the area and Mm -hmm. you are still applying what you learned and you are still farming. So at this point, I would say you have exceeded your 10 year commitment. (laughs) Well, thank you. I hope that (laughs) Jevons feels that way too. Yeah. I, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful to see that work continuing in a really, in a really great way. So always good to stay connected. And I also think was a natural path then for me because I really credit that experience with galvanizing my belief in the importance of local production of staple crops because part of the part of the Jevon system is not just growing your own cucumbers and tomatoes but also growing your own calories which in his system is which is a vegan system that means growing calorie dense foods like flower corn amaranth quinoa sorghum and also wheat and rye and so yeah, so it was kind of a natural extension to feel that importance on my own kind of homesteader scale and then think about how we amplify that to a community scale. And is that where you went after the six years? Did you go to the Mendocino Grain Project or did you have a little pit stop in the middle? I had a pit stop in the middle where I um, I had a pit stop in the middle and as a 
uh, fundraising auctioneer. So um, if some of you have seen me fast talking in front of a crowd, it was probably at a gala. And that's another bit of my Iowa roots. Uh, thank you. And so I took a year and a half off to take care of my, my mom, who was then ill, and do some auctioneering before I found my next farmer land. I think maybe one of the first times I met you, you were auctioneering. Um, and actually, I have that as one of the questions toward the end of the show, if we had a couple of extra minutes, um, because I think it is so interesting that you auction. And um, I have firsthand seen you like double, triple the amount that a fundraiser would have gotten on their own. Um, Rachel is tenacious, and I'm going to say just the right amount of pushy. <laughs> When it comes to raising money for good causes. Yeah. Um, I also Extending saw- the opportunity. That's how Ooh, I think of it. Ooh, nice, yeah. nice. Um, I also <laughs> saw you share the auctioneering responsibilities with someone at what maybe was the last in-person um, 4-H animal auction mm, at the county mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, there I, I was I was announcing for another auctioneer. But yeah, I mean, that's the beauty. of Not dissimilar, honestly, to the small grain community. The auction community is a small one and uh, lots of mutual support there. And uh, it's one of the things that's really neat about auctioneering. Um, that was the first and only year that we bought a 4-H animal. And I was really excited because I was excited. Um, and I, you know, the kids want to sell their animals, so that's yep. good. But I didn't read the vibe when the, the, the gal came over to sort of like give us our paperwork. And before I looked at her face, I was like, can we take a picture together? And then I look at her and she was bawling. Yeah. So I yeah. did not force that poor girl to take a picture. Yeah. I grew up in 4-H and it's a, it's a hard part of it because in, I mean, of course, that's part of the lesson of farming livestock as well. But also you have a more intimate relationship with those animals than you would your average beef cow. Of course. Or, yes, yeah. Or I think I rebounded well. I was, I was very kinder. <laughs> I have no doubt in your capacity to smooth over that situation. But I still think about that poor gal. And, you know, we really did enjoy that pork. So, yeah, well, there you go. One bad day, as the as the livestock farmers say. But she's had a couple bad days if she's stayed in the 4-H program. Sure. I can't right. imagine yeah, that for the pig, easier. Not for right, the no, young right. woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Sure, right. Four bad days or whatever. However many champions. Her day wasn't quite as bad as the pigs. Okay, so back to grain, which is why you're here. Um, The Mendocino Grain Project was established in 2009, so it actually came... It was established in Mendocino, it sounds like, the first year you came to Mendocino for your visit. Yeah, that's a great point. I never thought about that. How about that for synchronous? A little serendipity. Um, By Doug Mosel, who anyone in the farming community knows is a delight and a character. Yes, agree. Um, How did you meet Doug? What was the evolution of your relationship? I was just thinking on my drive here, every time I do an interview, I wish Doug was with me. Many times he is, (laughs) which is great. Um, I didn't invite him because I want to get him on a different show. Yes, good. Um, I'm spreading out the the characters. That sounds great. Uh, If you're listening, Doug, you're up. (laughs) I'm calling you. Um, yeah, how did I meet Doug? You know, I mean, just like you said, many people in the in the small organic farming community know Doug because he started the Grain Project, and it, you know it's so different than what a lot of farmers locally are doing, and fills what I believe is such an important niche in our um, not even niche, but an important element in our local food security and local food system that. Um, that working for Jevons and really valuing the importance of local food systems and being involved in that community, it was definitely adjacent to Doug's work. And so I'm not sure that I can remember the first time I met him personally, but I imagine it was at probably a farmer's convergence mm-hmm. or something like sure. that. Yeah. Yeah. And you just started talking and. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I, he, he would hate, I'm going to say this and he's going to hate it, but I, I was fond early on, even before I really knew him of calling him our county's Wendell Berry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because he's incre- incredibly articulate and not just articulate in the sense that he can express ideas, but 
articulate in the sense that he can speak to the heart of agriculture. And I think that's, it's that's, a romantic yeah, approach yeah. to, mm-hmm. and when I say romantic, I don't mean in the like, you know, love and lust way, but in the sort of, like you said, the heart of mm-hmm. what it is. And it's very intimate and beautiful and also painful sometimes yeah. and really rooted in the the realism that is being a small to mid-sized farmer yeah so mm-hmm. i like that it's okay if he's upset about it <laughs> great thank you <laughs> i'll remind you rubber, rubber stamp on the wendell berry of mendocino <laughs> county yeah so so i i was quite taken with him as i think many young people see him as a mentor in in many ways um and that being one of them kind of a kind of an almost like spiritual leader of the local ag movement um and honestly i i loved the grain project and i would cook for ecology action workshops and cook 100% local and so i used a lot of the mendocino grain products um in addition to what we were growing on the jevons farm and so uh yeah so i knew who doug was and I really loved that it existed, but it was at that time felt adjacent to the work that I was doing with Jevons. And so, and I knew then even as I was, as I was kind of beginning the transition out of managing a, a, one of Jevons research and teaching gardens, I knew that the word was out there that Doug was ready to find someone to take over. And I felt that awareness and I felt like, oh, it's very, I really felt that it was an important piece. And I think like many of us felt like I didn't want it to disappear. And, but at that time, I was also cultivating my career as an auctioneer. And so I originally got in touch with Doug because I thought, well, maybe I can support you through, you know, if we can fundraise so that someone can take on the grain project. So it was kind of one of those situations where I didn't, didn't have time when I was working with Jevons, really valued the work. Then taking care, I took care of my mother who passed in 2018. And so I just knew about it, but I wasn't actually involved in some of those early conversations about transition, but it was kind of poking at me. So finally I got in touch to say, okay, I'm, I want to help you. Let's figure out how to find someone that can transition. And, um, and then, something that Jevons often says is um, when he talks about where our food's going to come from, he says, tag, you're it. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. And so it's kind of funny in the sense that I got, I started talking to Doug um, more seriously about the transition as a supporter. And ultimately it just kind of felt like this calling that said, tag, you're it. And I thought, when I said, I'm going to help you find someone, <laughs> what I meant was, let's do this. You needed time to talk yourself into it. Yeah, yeah. Or to be, yeah, ex- yes. I mean, that was a major transition, a major undertaking. So I, um, it makes perfect sense to me that you needed that time to sort of wrap your head and heart around buying yeah. a, a pretty big local food company. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not small. It's not small. So let's it's talk really a little not, bit about yeah. like the nuts and bolts of the Mendocino mm-hmm. Green Project. Where do you grow? How many acres? Let's start there. Yeah. So we grow, currently we're growing 34 acres in Redwood Valley. Um, we're leasing land there. And then we have a really neat relationship that Doug initiated with a farmer in Covalo named Vincent Barney who he does all the field prep and planting and we provide the seed and then we come in and harvest for him. And so that gives us, depending on the year, anywhere from an extra 10 to 25 acres that he's growing in Covalo's Round Valley. And so, yeah, so that's where we're growing. And then that means transporting a combine, which is pretty expensive, but is worth it for us to get more local product. And that's another piece that we do. So we have two separate combines. Combines are the machines that harvest wheat right. mm-hmm. and, and many other things like, you know, beans, rye, mm, oats. And combines are enormous. Combines are often enormous. The combines I grew up with, the combines that I like the rode combines. on as a child are enormous. That take some <laughs> limbs occasionally from tired farmers that aren't thinking straight. Yes, as, as, as a lot of farm equipment does, sadly. I mean, thankfully, safety has improved over the years. Um, 
So, yeah, we because we are trying to practice an appropriate scale of staple crop growing for this region, our combines are relatively small. So one of them has a 10-foot head, and then one of them is a little baby combine that's very cute that has a 4-foot head. Mendocino size. Mendocino size. <laughs> and the really cool thing about that combine is we can load it on a trailer ourselves. And so, pitch alert... <laughs> <laughs> if you are a farmer that's been thinking about growing grain, this is part of our mission that it's enough if you have one acre or two acres to grow grain because we can come in pretty economically because we're able to haul that tiny combine ourselves and combine one, two, three acres of grain. Cool. Yeah. So if a farmer listening to this has an acre fallow or thinking about not growing, you know, tomatoes or yeah. weed perhaps. Or you need a rotation for your vegetable plot. Um, how do they find you? Yeah. So you can get a hold of me at Rachel at MendocinoGrain.com. And we soon you'll be able to get a hold of me at at our website which is mendocinograin.com but it's down right now because it's getting a new store which i will also pitch ooh <laughs> i mean one of my questions is absolutely where can people get mendocino grain project products yeah so uh, the mendo lake food hub is if you Love. haven't heard of it before check it out it's, if you've ever listened to my show you've oh, heard Great. of the mendo lake food yeah, hub it's basically I am an, obsessed with it. i am also obsessed with it it's the, basically an online farmer's market that will deliver to your door it's amazing so we're avail and one thing that's different about the Mendo Lake Food Hub is when we have small batches of things that we're not able to offer through our normal retail outlets, we can put small batches on the Mendo Lake Food Hub. So if you're looking for one of a kind, only place you can access their products from us, that would be the place to look. Um, super thankful for the consistent support of the the Ukiah Natural Food Co-op. They carry our flour, they carry our quinoa, which I can talk about in a second, um, both packaged and bulk, and drum roll very soon to be carrying local rolled oats. Yeah. That's going to be a hit. Yes, we're very, very excited This is excited a county of oat eaters, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, so so the food crop has been tremendously supportive. Mariposa Market, also supportive, also um, carries our product. And let's see, am I missing? Um, if you're up in Laytonville, Happy Day Farm Stand mm-hmm, cool. has our products. The farm stand at Ridgewood. And and you will soon be able to access both our CSA, which is a grain and bean subscription. So if you get a vegetable CSA and want to complement it with staple crops, you can do that with us um, at that MendocinoGrain.com. Very cool. Yeah. Tell me about quinoa. This is not something I've ever heard of being grown domestically. Yeah. So as it turns out, our Mediterranean climate is rather perfect for quinoa growing. One of the challenges of growing quinoa is that if it gets a late season rain, it will sprout on the plant. Mm. And so farm it's not a viable crop for farmers all across the U.S. So pretty much anyone growing it domestically is growing it in Mendes is growing in, in Northern California, in Northern or California. Okay. they are growing in Colorado. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah, it's really exciting. There's actually an incredible amount of quinoa production in Humboldt County. Huh. And so I had a, a dear friend from the organic seed growing world who was growing quinoa, and I got in touch as I was starting to assemble the idea for this local foods, the staple crop CSA. So, okay, not just my tomatoes, but also, you know, my quinoa and beans and um, oats and flour. And so I called him to source some of his product. And as it turns out, he, there's a longer story here, but he was shifting away from contracting with a bigger distributor and starting to do his own distribution and also needed help processing. So that's one of the big pieces. That's kind of a hidden piece of what we do is that grain, when it comes out of the field, is not ready to be milled into flour or packaged and eaten yet. It has to go through a cleaning process that's not wet, but a purifying process, really. And that process is very equipment intensive. 
And so we have that equipment for ourselves and we also have it for other farmers. And so that's one of the things that's really exciting about that quinoa relationship where previously Blake was sending that quinoa to Sacramento to get processed to come back to him in Humboldt to be sold. Wow. Now he can just send it one county down. Yep, he sends it to us and we send part of it back and the rest of it we keep and um, are able to offer to people here in Mendocino County. This is so cool. Yeah. Um, do tell me a little bit about the equipment because I saw years ago when Doug, um, was still running it, his warehouse, which he's since moved out of, but there were, that was a big warehouse and there were a lot of big machines. (laughs) Um, and I, I know that that's all very specialty. I know it's all quite expensive. Um, I don't know what the sort of like upkeep on those is, Mm -hmm. but like, what do you need to get quinoa from the field or flour or oats um, from the field onto my pantry shelf. Yeah. Yeah. I thankfully there's not a lot of specialization. So the same machines can get most products out of the field to package ready. Uh, Quinoa is an exception. It does have an extra step that we don't have to do with the other things that meant acquiring a different piece of equipment. But honestly, the easiest description is it's a glor it's, a glorified sifter and fan operation. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it's really, it's pretty, it is in fact a creative process because part of the reason that we need to do that is because we're working with organic grains. And so they don't come in pure, thankfully, because there's weed seed because it hasn't been killed by an herbicide. And so that's one of the trade-offs of organic production is that then we're handling that impurity in quotation marks in the post-processing. And so one of the ways we do that is screens and fans, but obviously that's a large machine. And then another way we do that is we have a thing called a gravity table that's able to sort um, sort seed out based on density. It's really cool. something to see. And so that does, that's really the big one that truly purifies things. So we have a product that could be replanted by that farmer's pure seed or, um, or sold. Can you take a video of that and put it on your Instagram? Cause I would really like to see it. <laughs> yes. I would love to do that. I have many, many videos already. <laughs> you are holding to. out on us. I know. I'm sorry. We, yeah, I would love to share that. Yes. So with a grain, um, that's going to be turned into flour. Once you do all of that, then you have to mill it mm-hmm. in a way that you don't have to mill beans, obviously, or, or quinoa. Yep. So. Mm-hmm. Can one mill do all the flowers? Yeah, great question. It can. Um, the simple answer is yes. We do all the flour on the same mill. We and we recently discovered that we cannot mill oat flour. Ah, <laughs> uh, little trial and error yeah, there. Yeah. So there is some exception there, and certainly looking down the road, you know, at some at some point we will need to upgrade to a larger mill, and our hope is that once we do that, we'll be able to to keep our smaller mill and designate it as a gluten free mill, so that we can mill flowers that are don't have gluten in them and certify their purity that's very cool but we can't do that now because we only have one mill so with your area partners farmers who want to you know either lease land to you or grow it themselves um if you are basically do farmers have the option of keeping it themselves and marketing it under their own label or selling it to the Mendocino Grain Project to be distributed under that label? And what is the breakdown of like how many farmers do which? Yeah, absolutely. So when I took on the business, largely uh, largely that's what farmers are doing. And mo- I, um, most of the farmers we work with are doing the first option that you mentioned, which is there, we're custom cleaning for them. Sometimes we're custom harvesting and we're sending the product back to them and they're marketing it through their channels. And then as we kind of butted up the limitation of against the limitation of our own production capacity and because we wanted to be able to offer things that we're not able to grow like quinoa. So we could grow quinoa in Mendocino County, but the land, but our system right now is built around dry farming. So we don't irrigate at all. And so we can't grow crops that require irrigation. And so those are the crops that we're looking to other farmers 
to grow and then we process them and often part of that crop is still going back to that farmer for distribution through their own channels and then we're purchasing part of it to offer to our customers as well this is so cool the hour is flying by so i want to take a minute (laughs) to reintroduce you uh this is the farm and garden show which you probably have figured out based on the fact that we are talking about grain and milling um i am your host elizabeth archer my guest is rachel Britton. She is the owner and operator of the Mendocino Grain Project. Uh, we are talking about, oh my God, just so many interesting things. So many things. <laughs> um, I do want to open up the lines. If you have a question for Rachel um, or me or some musings on grain, you can give us a call at 707-895-2448. Again, that's 707. Oh, we have a call immediately. Someone has been waiting for this. <laughs> Hi, caller. You are live on the air. Hey, can you hear me okay? Yep. Cool. I just want to thank you for the show. And I just turned it on and I heard Rachel Britt on the radio. <laughs> Rachel, it's Matt. I'm so grateful you're out there doing what you're doing and uh, taking over the grain. So keep doing the good work and uh, looking forward to seeing you around. Thank you. Matt, thank you so much. I hope you heard my shout out to the continuing good work of Ecology Action and, uh, and the biointensive method also. So appreciate the organizing you do. And, um, for those of you that don't know, Matt has Victory Gardens for Peace and that also has a seed bank on the coast that is an incredible resource. And, um, yeah, you know, I think, a fun thing, it's fun that you called in, Matt, because I often think of how our work continues to relate. And I think one of, one of the aspects is that I feel like I do what I do because not everyone grows grain. But I also think that it is a very exciting process and a very possible process to grow grain in your backyard. And I see them as kind of concentric circles. So if you're looking for grain seed and want to give it a go in your backyard, um, Victory Gardens for Peace and their seed bank is definitely the place to look. Cool. Oh, someone was on the line. We lost you. Call back if you want. Um, until then, my um, I think what probably a lot of people are wondering, because, and I know flour historically has been much more nutrient dense, and then we got into this pretty nasty cycle of processing all the good stuff out of it because then the rats won't eat it, uh, which should tell us a lot about our flour. (laughs) Um, But we are used to cooking with white flour for the Mm -hmm. most part. So what is your most equivalent, like, do you have a (laughs) one-to-one flour that you know you grow locally and that can be purchased locally that i can like put into my focaccia or carson can cook into his chocolate chip cookies and yeah it's a great question and there's some nuance there so bear with me which first i'll just say as a as a as a zoom out that Everything that we sell through the Mendocino Grain Project is whole grain, which means that we haven't taken any part of the grain out. We've just milled it exactly as it is. And so what does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. One is that does mean that there's a higher protein. And that also means that our bodies digest it differently um, because unlike a simple carbohydrate or a sugar that enters your bloodstream quickly, it's sort of leveled out by that protein. And so it enters your bloodstream more slowly. I should have given a disclaimer that I'm not a nutritionist. <laughs> no, I mean... There's my description. <laughs> as someone who obsessed over when, what went into her body until yeah. very recently, uh, not in a good way, I can say that that is accurate. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Okay, perfect. Expertise through life experience. I'll take it. <laughs> um, so, so that's why we've chosen to only offer whole grain even though, just like you are observing, it does act differently in the kitchen if you're used to using white flour. So white flour has been sifted or the germ, which is a large part of the protein, has been removed, which makes it fluffy. It means that gluten, part, which is also protein in the flour, is able to form more easily without being interrupted. And so that gives you those big fluffy breads, um, and also really fluffy cakes. Mm-hmm. So my a piece of my professional background that I left out is as a professional pastry chef. No. <laughs> and so 
So I know well the challenges of working with whole wheat flour, but also pastry is a great place to start because often in pastry, you actually don't want that gluten formation. So as long as it's milled fine, you can create a lot of the same goals that you're looking for in pastry, like a fluffy cake or a chewy cookie or a crispy flour crust or flaky flour crust um, with whole grain if the grind is fine. So some, so what I call our gateway flour uh-huh. is called Sonora I White Wheat. I knew it was going to be Sonora Wheat. <laughs> you know how I knew that, Rachel? Go ahead. That is the one I use. <laughs> I love I, that. I, I have not um, branched. I think I've used Red Fife a couple times. Uh-huh. But yeah. Sonora Wheat, folks. Yeah. So, so Sonora is a lower gluten flour, um, which makes it great which makes it act like white flour in many ways. It still has that germ, so it will interrupt gluten formation. And so sometimes in, say, a pie crust, it can be a little more tender to work with, but the results and the subsequent flavor are, dare I say, worth it. I would agree. And honestly, (laughs) with a pie crust, it's not the flour that's messing it up. It's that you're overworking it. (laughs) And also maybe not using enough butter. Pastry tips with Elizabeth and Rachel. I would listen to that show. We, let's take another call. Hi, oops. Hello? Hi, caller. You're live on the air. Great. Uh, Rachel, this is Jim over in Albion. My wife, a couple of years ago, grew three ki- four kinds of grain in 250 square foot plots. And you're right. Trying to get the finished product into something that we we could use was terrible. So I have two questions. One, what's the smallest amount of grain we could deliver to you so that you could process it? Yeah, great question. Thank you for asking that. And I hope that it's on many people's minds. So um, we... We have tried to keep our system modular so that we can continue to do small batches because that's what we want to be able to do for people. So it sort of depends what stage your grain is in, but the real answer is that no batch is too small for us to help you, but the larger your batch, the more economical it would be. So just to actually put some numbers on that, basically we charge a flat incoming fee of $50 no matter what it is. So for farmers that have... 4,000 pounds, that feels like pretty much nothing. If you're bringing in five pounds, that might be, might feel, um, more expensive. So that's, that's kind of the transparent answer. You there. would not believe what my wife went through out there with four kinds of grain trying to get the finished product. <laughs> it was amazing. Jim, so, I will tell you that uh, I, I do know because I've been there. Here, yeah. what's the smallest amount that you would come and, and, and harvest it? An acre? Mm, great question. Largely, that's often what makes sense. We, um, when we custom harvest, we charge by the hour. So there again, they're actually, we, I, for example, we did a custom harvest job in Sebastopol this year where I literally drove the combine for 300 yards and we were done. But yeah. we charge hourly, including our hauling rate. So part of that depends on how far away you are from Ukiah and and how much having that harvested by a machine is worth it to you. So we're also happy to work with you. If you give us a call and tell us about your situation, we can we can talk you through hand harvesting. And then one way that farmers oh, no, make no, no, it more. No. I'm 77. I don't want a hand harvest. <laughs> <laughs> I want sure. Susan do it. I don't want to do that. There we go. Totally well, understand really that as well. Question. Quinoa, when we had group quinoa, which grows really well here in Albion, uh, we could not process it down. We could, it was always bitter. Yeah. Is that something that you could, you, is that normal and you could take care of that? Yes, it is normal. All, all quinoa, except for varieties that have been specifically bred to be saponin free, have saponins on the outside. So one of the advantages of that is that you might have noticed that the birds didn't eat your quinoa. And one of the disadvantages is that we don't want to eat it like that either. So, yes, you're absolutely right. That's normal. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, I'll be in touch. I'll listen to you. I'll get, I'll get your show on, online. That sounds great, Jim. I'll look forward to it. Thanks so much for the call. Thanks for the call. Thanks, bye. bye. Yeah, so we we have a machine called a scarifier. And one of the great things about that scarifier is that it works on a really – the minimum size is, is fairly large. It's about – to what let's see about 15 pounds of quinoa can um is probably our minimum batch size and that allows us to it's kind of like a rice polisher that gets that 
bitterness out off the outside of quinoa. Huh. I'm learning so much. Uh, you're very popular. Let's take another call. <laughs> Hi, caller. You are live on the Farm and Garden Show. Hello? Oops. Sorry. Can you start over? Oh. Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Oh, you got a bad connection. Okay, all right, bye. Try again. Anyway, call us back if you can get to a a place with better reception. The first part was my fault. I didn't turn the phone microphone on. Um, But the second part was your connection. So we're still taking calls. Um, We have about... 14 minutes left, 13 really, because I'm supposed to end a minute early. Um, give us a buzz, 707-895-2448. Talking today with Rachel Britton, owner and operator of the Mendocino Green Project. So quinoa is native to, or I don't know if it's originally native to, I honestly don't know that much history of it, but I do know it's considered like a heritage crop of Peru mm-hmm. um, and Bolivia probably. Mm-hmm. Any Andean mount, uh, mountainous countries, yeah. probably Chile, maybe mm-hmm. some in Argentina. Um, what are our area's sort of traditional heritage crops? Like what would have been grown here a while back, hundreds or even a thousand years ago by indigenous people? And are we growing any of those today? Are you growing? Is anyone trying Is anyone, that? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I will f- first... Uh, um, I will first just add an ignorance disclaimer that I'm sure that I have much to learn in this department. A, a couple of things I, I know about is I learned from the California Native Plant Society that plantain is something that was used like a grain. Not, you know, we know plantain and often I, I was more familiar with its herbal use as the actual green leaf, but it does put up that little seed stock yeah, and you can harvest exceptionally small seed wow. <laughs> from it. That's and a so, dedicated person harvesting plantains. Seed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so California Native Plant Society, when I visited, shared with me that that was something that was apparently being used as an, a native food source. And, you know, yeah, I think beyond that, pretty much anyone else would probably be better at answering that question in a more astute way. I mean, I think, I think part of it is that grains, grains fit very well into like a European and agrarian society. society. And so when, you know, when we're thinking about how agriculture functions and moves with the ecosystem and the landscape. I don't know that this was the most appropriate landscape for grain. And I think one of the things that that we do to kind of grapple with that is, I mean, for one, we try to not have these, it's impossible actually for us to have these massive fields of, for example, Iowa, like I grew up with, like we, our fields are not contiguous like that. And Another thing about grain farming that ends up being fairly unnatural is that there's a point in the year when the whole field is empty. Mm. So we're trying some different creative strategies to deal with that. And one of them is basically a variation of what some people might have heard called strip farming. And so we have, for example, a 16-acre parcel in Redwood Valley. We cover crop half of it, and we cover crop, and then we crop the other half of it. But it's not eight acres and eight acres. It's like two, 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 two. Okay. So that when so we start big enough to get the combine in there, right? We're not talking about like six foot rows, no. <laughs> but right. But when we drive through and harvest the grain crop, there's still standing cover crop. So you know, carabid beetles, something close to my heart, because that was the thesis of mine. <laughs> As an indicator of diversity in organic systems, they can survive. They can run to the cover crop. So, <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. right? Because I mean, it is so disruptive to the landscape when you roll through with your big old farm equipment. Yeah, and it's hard to not imagine. You know, and when you look at a harvested grain field, sometimes it's like, oof, that does not look natural. You know, and so I do. It's I feel excited about exploring ways that we can minimize impact with crops that are really resilient. So I want to talk a little bit about when you took over the grain project. It was 2020. 
which something else pretty major happened in 2020, <laughs> <laughs> technically 2019. Um, but a little thing called COVID-19 started making itself known. Um, and that was actually four small farms kind of a net benefit, at least at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We all know supply chain was a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, local food was often more available. People had a little bit more time because we were stuck at home to be thoughtful about where our food was coming from. Um, it also was like a more interesting errand to run to go to a farm stand than a grocery store. And errands were the only time I let myself leave the house for a good six months. Um, so you bought the business there's a pandemic. I understand that your sales grew <laughs> something like 20 fold mm-hmm. in that year. And that in 2020, you harvested 30,000 pounds of grain. So there's a lot to unpack there. But how were you <laughs> able to scale so quickly? How were you able to grow? I mean, your product is finite. You can only sell what you've grown and processed. It's not like, yep. um, like, I can't even think of something else. Like a radish, right? You can grow in four weeks or six weeks mm-hmm. or something. Grain right. has a much longer growth and process and and uh, packaging time. So just talk a little bit about that. I threw a lot at you, but... Yeah. So, I mean, first I'll say that uh, that growth in sales happened f- literally <laughs> from February to March. And just so we're all clear, my official acquisition date was February 1st, 2020. Whoa. So I had one... It's your anniversary. It's your two-year anniversary, <laughs> anniversary almost. Yeah. yeah, I had one month of sanity. And thank God, and I think I've said this many times, but just to underscore, I mean, especially that continuing to this day, but especially that first year, I think there wasn't a day that Doug wasn't there. And yeah, I could speak for a whole broadcast about the experience of transition and, and the value of, of wisdom and experience and relationship, which ultimately I think is what does in fact make local food systems more resilient. Absolutely. So, I mean, I feel like the pandemic was so interesting for me because from I like a core value of mine is staying open to my own wrongness. Ooh, I like that. And so I feel that way about, you know, about the local food system. You know, I feel open to being challenged about is it, you know, feeling challenged like is it true that it's more resilient or are we more susceptible to regional shifts and weather etc and so the pandemic was a really deep experience for me in that sense because it galvanized my like trust and faith in the local food system in what i feel is a really rational way and for and what is so amazing is that I do authentically believe that it came down to relationships. So when our sales skyrocketed and there was the time when there wasn't flour on shelves, when King Arthur, when Bob's Red Mill, I mean, those are already a small gold medal. These much, much larger producers couldn't make up the supply shift fast enough. Because everyone was learning how to make bread. <laughs> right, <exactly>. Myself included. <laughs> and so... So if you're if you're interested in our story, there is um, I I can't remember what issue or I can't state precisely what issue, but there's an article about us in the word of mouth that talks about this story. But but basically, there are a few things. One is Doug had food stores, so he had stores from past years. Another is because we're a clean a seed cleaning facility, we are connected to every grain farmer in the region that's growing organic grain. And all of a sudden, they have a lot of motivation to get their stuff cleaned. Yes, definitely. And also those relationships that Doug and then another important mentor of mine, John Laboito, um, who grain farms in Lake County, both of them had relationships of, hey, who do I call when we're out of Sonora that's going to have a crop that was grown in a way that I'm comfortable selling to our customer existing customers and then the other piece is we couldn't mill fast enough mm. but we have a relationship with a nonprofit called honor a farm and mill and they do a lot of education work we mill for them they have an educational mill that's the same mill that we have they weren't using the educational mill because it was there wasn't any education and happening. so they sent the mill up to us, and that's how we pivoted so fast. Wow. And I really, you know, I mean, I think that story makes it clear. It all came down to a relationship for us. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, we are almost out of time. 
And I don't want to leave the show without acknowledging the gap that is being filled in the local food system by the Mendocino Green Project. Um, We don't have a ton of farms necessarily, but most of the farms we do have are growing vegetables. Very few of them are growing grain, and fewer even of those are um, selling the grain that they're growing. So um, can you just briefly talk about why you think it's so important to have a local food system that can meet all of our nutritional needs and the role you see Mendocino Grain Project playing in that? Briefly. (laughs) Not a complicated question at all. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so, so one of the many benefits of grain is that there's storable calories. So there's some inherent resilience in that, right? I mean, so Doug had grain stored when the surge in demand happened in 2020. We are we have the infrastructure to store grain so that if, you know, for any reason supply routes were ever cut off, there's literally calories and you know there's thousands of pounds of grain and not enough for this whole county and I think that's something that we should think about and continue to think about and certainly something I think about as we address, you know, scale and how big is too big and where do we want to go and what do we want to be able to provide this county um and then i think in terms of also personal diets and that's something that i really took away from the jevin system it's like you know if i was if i try to get 2400 calories from carrots i'm going to be eating 12 pounds of carrots a day right which not is sustainable not pleasant no if i'm trying to get that much calorie from wheat or rye I'm eating more like 1.2 pounds a day or turn it into a bread loaf, call it two and a half pounds a day. I mean, obviously, we're not actually only eating those things. Sure. (laughs) But that's in relationship. We're talking about calorie density plus those vitamin and minerals that we get from fresh vegetables. And that is the diet. I mean, that's what I eat. It's like what makes me feel great. And that's what I want to have access to locally. And I think then the added benefit is the carbon that that creates to put into our soil. Oh yeah! Which, oh my gosh, we could talk all about <laughs> we carbon talk capture, all about that. and and then also that storability, like I said, so that we have those calories here when we need them. Rachel, we barely scratched the surface. Honestly, <laughs> will you come back for I another show? I know it's true. There's a lot of com- we just we threw in carbon at the last minute. We can, <laughs> don't even get me started. Um, (laughs) Hey, everybody. This has been the Farm and Garden Show. I'm your host, Elizabeth Archer. I will be back in two weeks. Um, My guest today has been Rachel Britton, who owns and operates the Mendocino Grain Project. If you didn't have a chance to listen to this truly awesome show, if I may say so myself, um, it will be available to stream online at kzyx.org. And if you're interested in growing, you know, a half acre, quarter acre, 10 acres of grain, Give Rachel a call. She'll help you plant it, I'm sure. She'll connect you with seeds. She'll help you harvest and clean it. So thank you so much for being here today, Rachel. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.